But I, I, I will say, I will say that I've talked a lot of. Oh, got the sirens coming again here. Um, pausing for sirens is a big part of Crackdown. Like we do this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Nebula. Um, the dog is named Nebula. You heard. You you you, you heard that yeah. too. I'm not sure if it's. I I I was like, is that the kid's name or the, oh, <laughs> or the dog's I, name? I, 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 it's it's. I think it's the dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 24. If it wasn't drugs. It would be something else. On May 25th, 2020, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. But in court, Chauvin's lawyer blamed fentanyl. He said fentanyl gave Floyd superhuman strength, so Chauvin was justified in using handcuffs and physical restraint. And, the lawyer argued, Floyd died of overdose, not murder. Of course, this is bullshit, and the jury agreed. I've seen a lot of opioid overdoses. Too much dope just drops you. It doesn't give you superpowers. Using the drug war as a pretext to murder black people is nothing new. As Dr. Carl Hart noted recently in the New York Times, police have long promoted racist myths about how drugs make black people crazed, violent, and homicidal. Cops use these racist lies to whip up and amplify fear and to justify huge police budgets, paramilitary equipment, occupation of black neighborhoods, carding, arrests, brutality, and even murder. Um, could you introduce yourself? My name is Desmond Cole. I'm an activist, journalist, and an author. Desmond Cole is the author of a best-selling book called The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power. He's been a leading activist against carding and police brutality. I wanted to talk to Desmond about how the drug war fits into the bigger story of police violence against black communities in Canada. And uh, thank you. Since since the pandemic is happening, we're we're outside. Could you explain where we are? We're sitting in a park uh, near where I live, and we're in a community garden inside that park. There are dogs uh, walking. There are owners. There are people playing basketball and tennis, and it's a pleasant day. Okay, cool. Um, can you tell me about how you kind of got introduced to? Um, harm reduction and drug user activism? Yeah. Um, I came to Toronto in 2004. I had recently dropped out of university at Queen's, and um, I really didn't know where my life was going anymore. And um, I moved to Toronto just thinking it would be easier to make it here. Mm -hmm. And... um, I fell on some really, really difficult times. Desmond was homeless on and off for a couple years, sleeping outside and in shelters. He started going to a harm reduction drop-in place in downtown Toronto, a place called YouthLink. You can get a hot shower or something to eat. There were workshops and education programs. 
you could see a nurse or even get legal advice. At the beginning, Desmond went there just to get a cup of coffee and read the newspaper. And um, I found this to be really helpful. And it ended up that I got a part-time job working at this harm reduction facility. And so we gave out clean needles, crack pipes, we gave out condoms, dental dams, we did harm reduction trainings, we did safer sex trainings, and this became part of my world. And they were just doing that because people needed that service and they knew that they could provide it. And it didn't matter if the government was sanctioning it or not. And that was my introduction too, is that the first, the first syringes I was ever given as a teenager were, were given to me by someone who was risking arrest for doing it. You know, um, the first interactions I had with harm reduction were that this is a sort of an insurgent community grassroots effort. And then as the years go by, it becomes sort of more professionalized and institutionalized and, and white. Um, you know... I, I think that um, the institutionalization of these things is, it's about money. And so what we see in a city like Toronto is that we have social service agencies out here who need to have their share of the pie. They need to be able to get funding and in order to get their funding, they need to be able to basically say, we're saving people's lives in the communities. So when harm reduction was criminalized, it didn't matter about saving lives because that, that kind of behavior was seen as encouraging drug use, as encouraging illicit behavior in our communities. And so it wasn't uh, sanctioned. Giving out condoms was encouraging sex work, and so it wasn't sanctioned. But suddenly... I think that the nonprofit sector got the idea that we can say we're saving lives and then we can get funding if we start to do this kind of service provision. But it always comes with strings attached when institutions get involved, and that's something that I have definitely noticed. So I worked at a harm reduction facility where our door was literally always open when the facility was open. But I noticed that a lot of social service providers would say that this is a drop-in, but then they would have someone at the door serving essentially as a bouncer. And so that person would get to ask you 20 questions before you were even allowed into the space. They want to make sure that the people that they're helping are the so-called right people, are the worthy people. They don't want to give service provision and harm reduction supports to just anyone. They want to be able to tell a funder, we got that person off the street. Right. We got that person off of drugs or alcohol, and therefore the money that you have given us is justified and we need more of it. And so I think that there is a huge problem with the professionalizing of this kind of help and that actually peer-to-peer, like person-to-person -person support, giving people the things that they need is the most effective way to do this. But come on, beyond all that, people need a friggin' house to live in. They don't need to be moralized to somebody about their drug use. They need running water. <laughs> they need the things that everyone else needs in order to survive before we even start talking about service provision. How are you supposed to provide services to somebody who can't take a shower? who can't eat regular meals, who is diabetic but is not getting support for that. I mean, this is, this is the most fucked up thing about this, uh, the overdose crisis, is that so, so much of the work seems to be around not dying. Like, that this is, 
this is, you know, like I, I have ideas about changing the whole world, but not dying is a very small demand. You know, it's just like it is, we, we have been like worn down to the tiniest nub of, of the front of this and like remembering all the other parts that come with that. Um, I don't know, it's sometimes, it's sometimes hard in the storm of, of, uh, of fatalities that we have, you know. I was speaking to somebody from the Encampment Support Network here in Toronto yesterday, and this individual told me, I've lost so many friends to the streets in the last 20 years. I've lost so many friends to this opioid crisis that I don't have time to mourn anymore. He said, I don't have time to grieve. And I really had to pause and sit with that. Like, what does that mean? All of these people, individuals, spirits, life forces, people who in this world affect other people. And when they're gone, we don't even have the time and the energy to mourn their loss, to honor what it meant that they were alive because the war is so all-consuming and so perpetual that people just go on. And what does that mean for people who are at the front lines of this? What does it mean for drug users who take it upon themselves to try and provide relief for themselves and for other peoples but don't have time to take care of themselves because this work is so daunting and there's so much stigma and so much judgment attached to all of these conversations. That's something that I think about and I don't have an answer for, except to say that, you know, we all have a responsibility to remove this level of judgment that we believe that we're making and actually look at the toll that this is taking on human life. Like, it, it, it's painful. It's painful and it's too much for the individuals who are so engaged trying to help and trying to support to bear on their own. And it's not their responsibility, quite frankly, to do so. I, I don't know what we do either. Like we have this practice of trying to hold memorials for the drug user group members that we lose. Um, and the walls of Vandu are full of pictures of people who are gone. Like that's what's in that organization now. And so like we're all the time organizing memorials. And last year, we lost so many people that we had to do it all at once. We had a we had a big demonstration in March and then like an hour or so of just different people coming up to the mic and, and eulogizing people. You know, and on the podcast, I find myself saying goodbye to people in the credits or at the back half or something because I don't know kind of how else to do it. Otherwise, we'd be doing every episode would be sort of about somebody's life. And I've thought maybe that's, maybe that's what we need to pivot to. Maybe that's what, the, what this is. But I definitely don't have an answer to that. I know that social movements have faced like just waves of destruction before. You know, I think about ACT UP from what they, was happening to them in the 80s. Uh, but mm. I, still don't, I still don't understand how people, I, I don't, maybe you just, Maybe you just survive. I don't know what happens, but uh, I'm, I'm with you. I don't know either. No. Well, but I think this is where um, we need to be able to imagine something that is not this hell that we're, quite frankly, all living.
Desmond's book, The Skin We're In, is full of examples of racist policing in Canada, including how the cops used the drug war to justify violence against black people. Desmond writes, a central responsibility of policing has always been the discipline of black people on behalf of the ruling class. And those examples of police discipline and violence continue. Like last October in Ottawa. Without warning, police rammed in the door of Nora Oust's 12th floor apartment. Nora was at work, but her partner was home, along with her 94-year-old mother and her kids, aged 12, 13, and 23. One cop shouts, police, don't move, while another throws a flashbang grenade. The grenade explodes in a flash of light and smoke begins to fill the apartment. Eight officers in SWAT gear storm into the flat, pointing guns. Canadian cops call this a dynamic entry, and it killed Nora's son. He didn't have time to leave. He didn't have time to leave. He didn't have time to, to know life. He was a kid. Anthony was on house arrest uh, awaiting trial for drug charges. And the police raided his home under the pretense that they thought that there might be drugs in his home. Anthony Ost was wearing an ankle bracelet. The police knew where he was at all times. They knew he was in his home and they knew that his family were there with him. There was no reason for them to bust in, kick down the door, throw smoke grenades, arrest other members of his family. But that is what they did and Anthony fell out of the window of the apartment and died. Um, when your pretext is that a black person is using drugs or is in possession of drugs or maybe selling drugs, then you're justifying as the police saying, we can use any level of force against that person, including lethal force, that they don't have to be engaging in something that is in that moment harmful to themselves or to another person. It is merely suspicion of a connection between a black person and drugs that enables us to go SWAT team style. And this is what they call a no-knock warrant in the United States. This is how Breonna Taylor was murdered inside of her own house. And that's what happened to Anthony Oust as well. But we see that these things are used as a pretext. The, thing, the same thing happened to Chantel Krupka in... Um, in uh, Peel region in Mississauga. A Mississauga mother says she was shot on the front porch of her suburban home after being tasered by Peel police officers. He pulled out the taser when he told my partner to go inside. He said go inside and then immediately tased him. He gave him a command and didn't even give him opportunity to follow through. Then he pointed the same taser at me as I was running from him and hit me in my back. I'm running from you. How am I a threat? It didn't stop there. Krupka says the impact of the taser forced her to fall down and catch her breath, but then she remembered her partner had been tasered as well. She put her hand out to reach for him to see if he was okay. Krupka was shot in her lower abdomen and has a fracture in her right hip. She's been recovering after multiple surgeries. She was shot by a Peel Regional Police officer, and after she was shot, they entered her home without her permission. They searched it and found marijuana, and then they said that she and her partner were trafficking. So they shot this woman and nearly killed her. And then after they shot her, said, well, what can we use to justify our violence against this black woman? 
And she survived to tell her story and has been a fierce advocate fighting with Malton People's Movement for other people in that region that have been harmed by the Peel police. They took an oath to protect people, and instead they're out here killing us. I'm very lucky to be alive. We know Uncle Jaws is not here today because of these people. We know that DeAndre Campbell, justice for We know DeAndre, DeAndre Campbell, Jamal Francique, we could go on, Regis, we could go on and on and on with the names and it needs to stop. This is how the state justifies its violence against black people. But we already know that if it wasn't drugs, it would be something else. So I want to make that clear, is that these stereotypes do serve to create a narrative of black criminality that then justifies the violence. But if it wasn't drugs, it would be something else. It would that we were threatening. We raised our arms too quickly when the police were around us. We talked back. We didn't answer the questions properly. We answered too many questions. There will always be a pretext if it's not drugs. Hmm. A lot of the harms that we see, uh, you know, are coming from policing and, and the way that the drug war is policed. And there was something that kind of struck me in your book. Um, you you talked about the the concept of white supremacist improv, and I'll just yes. uh, I'll just quote here for a second. You say white supremacy encourages the people it benefits to create their own parallel universe their own facts and explanations about the existence and prevalence of racism. And, uh, I mean, can you see the ideas about black communities and drugs in the white imagination in in the policing? Like, black and white people use drugs around the same rate, but drug war policing lands on black communities really differently. I mean, this is our history. Um, And, of course, it is not restricted to black people. Um... Stereotypes have been made uh, uh, about Asian people using opium, about black and indigenous people smoking weed and drinking. These stereotypes created by white settlers to justify their position of dominance are uh, across the spectrum of all those immigrants who have found their way to what we call Canada, as well as the indigenous peoples who were here before this place was ever called Canada. It is not an accident. It is not an accident that these kinds of stereotypes exist. And they're extremely effective because they allow you to justify criminalizing people and doing things like, you know, um, we had a police chief here when I had first come to Toronto named Julian Fantino. Mm -hmm. And Julian Fantino... Um, under his watch, the police, you know, obviously continued their reign of terror against black communities. But what Fantino did was he tried to use statistics to justify these things. And he said that, you know, we have statistics suggesting that black people are involved in, you know, assaults and they're involved in robberies and they're involved in these crimes. And so if the police are stopping and harming them, it is... um, it's their own fault because they're responding to the behavior that black people are engaging in. And one of the things that Julian Fantino was particularly hard about, of course, was drugs and marijuana. And Julian Fantino's police force put a lot of black people in this city in jail for simple possession of marijuana. And now Julian Fantino, having become a cabinet minister after police chief and and then retiring from that form of public life, He's now actually part of a cannabis corporation. Hey, welcome back to Midas Letter Live. My guest this segment is Julian 
Fantino, my apologies. He's the CEO of Alifia Health Inc. Julian, thanks for joining us today. My great pleasure, thank you. I, I feel like I should actually be re still referring to you as, as chief because you were formerly the chief of police of the city of Toronto. I was indeed. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you came to be the CEO of a company that advises people on consuming marijuana for medical reasons. There are always those that uh, looked at a negative, but I, I feel that uh, this particular area of trying to help people uh, and the work that we're doing and the work that certainly I've been doing all my career uh, uh, makes me, I think, a, a good candidate for change. Sure, and bet. we're doing good. Yeah, you bet. And let's focus on that. Julian Fantino has since left his weed job, but other former drug warriors are still at this kind of thing. Giorgio Mammoliti, a former city councillor in Toronto, a racist bigot like Fantino, who said that uh, people in housing were like cockroaches that mm -hmm. needed to be driven out. I see it. Uh, like uh, spraying down uh, a building full of cockroaches. The cockroaches are just going to scatter, right? Yeah. So start evicting them. Yes. Let them scatter because their particular uh, strength is when they're all together in a community like Jane and Finch. Yeah. So I want to knock down all of the social housing in Jane and Finch. He too criminalized black people in the northwest area of Toronto, and now he as well is affiliated with a cannabis company. And the same thing can be said about George Smitherman, a former liberal cabinet minister who was all tough on drugs until he decided that he too wanted to make money in the cannabis industry. Think you're tough? Imagine living at 251 Sherburne Street with the city as your landlord. If getting to the front door meant fighting your way through drugs and crime, would you ever even leave your apartment? And so all these white men that I've just named to you, who were public officials and police officials, made other people's lives miserable and took away their freedoms in the name of the drug war. And now they are profiting directly from that war because Justin Trudeau decided to make cannabis so-called legal while not erasing the criminal records of all of those who have suffered under this time. So, you know, it's a different set of rules for white settlers. That's how they maintain dominance. Um, in, in, the, uh, in the book you wrote, um, you said you we, should, we should always uh, pay extra attention to laws that contain the word safe and ask whose safety is being addressed. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. I see this word safe all over the place here. Like, I mean, in, in policing strategies, you know, community safety and the name of community groups and politicians when they're talking during election campaigns. And it sounds very, you know, warm and fuzzy to people, I think, to a lot of people. Can you explain what you, why you want people to pay extra attention to safety and, and whose safety are we talking about? When I was here in uh, Ontario in the 90s, we had the so-called Safe Streets Act, mm -hmm. enacted by the Mike Harris government. Back in the 1990s, Canadian governments were slashing social programs. It became harder to get on welfare. In big cities, gentrification caused waves of homelessness. I knew kids in Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto who started panhandling and squeegeeing, washing car windows at stoplights for change. Of course, politicians and the media started panicking about street crime and urban decay. The mayor of Toronto called squeegee kids thugs and criminals. In January 2000, the Safe Streets Act came into force in Ontario. BC did the same thing a few years later under Premier Gordon Campbell. 
The Safe Streets Act created new offenses for aggressive panhandling or solicitation of a captive audience. That is, asking for change off someone in a car, at a bank machine, or waiting for a bus. And you could now get charged for unsafe disposal of used condoms, needles, and broken glass. Basically, the act gave police expanded powers to hassle poor and marginalized people. Well, so whose safety was the Safe Streets Act meant to preserve? Was it the people who are living on the street? No. In fact, the Safe Streets Act says that if you are soliciting, you can be given a ticket but that people who are soliciting for a registered charity are actually exempt from the exact same prosecution that somebody who is not part of a registered charity. So if you're panhandling, you don't get an exemption. You're the threat to safety if you're a panhandler. But if you're registered with a nonprofit agency and you're standing in the middle of the sidewalk asking people for money, then you are exempt. So whose safety are we talking about? The police are not here to ensure everyone's safety. That is a mythology. That is a myth. The police are here to ensure the safety of the ruling class and their property. Period. Period. The safety of white settlers has to come at the expense of black people's safety. The so-called Safe Schools Act in Ontario, again, under the Harris regime, was used as a pretext to expel thousands of black students or suspend thousands of black students from our schools. GTA school boards, it is very common to see that black students are two and three and four times more likely to be suspended in order to keep the school safe than our white students and that this actual behavior starts around kindergarten and grade one. So that we're not even just talking, say, about high school students. Even primary school black children are being singled out, again, for the general welfare of the school, right? We can't have a learning environment because this black student is trying to take it away from the everyone who needs to be kept safe. So the way to keep the school safe for everyone is to exclude black children and deny them an education. And of course, when we talk about an epidemic of gun violence on the streets of Toronto, no one wants to make the connection between our children being forced out of the school system and our children getting involved in gunplay and violence on the streets. That conversation can never be made because it is an indictment of your so-called safety regime that pushes kids onto the street. That is not safety for anyone. Right. But this is the limitation of these kinds of languages. Well, dramatic moments unfolding at Toronto Police Services Board today when anti-carding activist Desmond Cole brought the meeting to a sudden stop with a protest over police refusing to destroy data collected under carding. I plan to stand here in protest until you commit, until you commit today, here and now, to restricting the police having our information going forward. You're going to ruin another generation of children's lives, and I'm not going to allow you to do it. Last year, activists in Vancouver, Toronto, and elsewhere called for cutting police budgets in half. We've also been fighting for decriminalization of drug users, sex workers, and poor people. I mean, if we won those things, it'd be massive. But would it be enough? The reality of, of the moment that we're in is that we need relief now. Right. And so, um, for example, in my city, 
um, after the huge uprisings for Black Life last summer, Black Lives Matter Toronto proposed cutting the police budget by at least 50%. They said that 50% reduction in policing immediately was their baseline. And that is a recognition that while we may not get to where we want to be immediately, people need relief now. People are suffering today from the various forms of policing, capital P policing by the actual cops, and small p policing by our child welfare services, by social workers, by housing workers who go and harass people in our parks who are living in encampments today. There are all different kinds of forms of policing that people need relief from right now. And so decriminalization to me, um, it's, it's, it's a step. It's not the entire conversation. But I, I, I actually think that um, the immediate... Um, wiping clean of people's criminal records is maybe the most fundamental change that could be made immediately. Because it's one thing to say we'll no longer arrest people for these kinds of activities, but it's another thing to recognize that people can't actually move forward with their lives, people can't apply for jobs, people can't apply for certain kinds of housing. All kinds of opportunities are permanently closed to people who have criminal convictions for drug possession. You know, there's just untold thousands of people in our country who can't get their life back and who can't move forward. But ultimately, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be out here in Toronto with Robin Maynard, who's been living here over the past two or three years from Montreal. And Robin is one of the longer voices in this country for abolition. And she keeps reminding us that, you know, we haven't been in this place before. We weren't in this place two or three years ago where we could even have conversations, serious conversations about defunding the police. And that was a legible conversation that people could plug into and understand what it meant. And as Robin points out, there is a difference between saying Black Lives Matter, which is a statement of fact and a statement of our rights to exist and our right to be free in this world. There's a difference between that being the rallying cry and abolish the police, defund the police being the rallying cry, because now we're making a specific demand. Do you have um, visions of the kind of um, mutual aid or, or community-based safety that we would hope to replace policing with? Yeah, yeah, and I, and I want to say a couple of things about this. I was in um, Edmonton a couple of years ago, and I was in three cities in Alberta at the time having conversations with people about carding. And I had chosen to go to Alberta because cities in Alberta were all getting data about police uh, surveillance and carding and they were finding of course as everyone else in the country finds when they run the data that black and indigenous people are disproportionately stopped by the police in Alberta but they were particularly finding that indigenous women were the most disproportionately subject to this kind of arbitrary police detention questioning surveillance searches arrests etc and we had a forum and there was somebody who told a story in Edmonton about how she used to walk to school every day 
and that there were women in her community who were sex workers, who were often outside, but who kept an eye on the community and made sure that she got home safely and to school safely every day. And the quote that she said that I remembered is that she said, I would walk through glass for those women today because no one else was looking out for my safety when they were. And I think that that's the kind of thing that gets overlooked. When I see the encampment um, situation out here in Toronto where so many people have been forced out into the streets because there is no housing in the city of Toronto, it's people in encampments who are looking out in the public space, watching over one another, watching out over the space, providing safety. We have to actually engage in accountable um, action and accountable conversations and separating people from violent situations. We have to be able to do that work in our communities because pretending that the misogynistic police force is going to do it for it, what a fantasy, right? It might seem daunting to people to actually try to have to imagine a whole different world and a whole different existence than the one that we're living in now. That might seem unrealistic to people. And that imagine that our world is so messed up that we can't simply engage in reform, that we have to imagine something completely different from what is happening now in order to survive. That in and of itself must feel so exhausting for people. And yet, I actually think that that is often what drives people to continue doing what they do and gives people the energy is that ability to imagine, you know, Stevie Wonder said, do we have to find our way through space and time or is it the vision in our minds? Like, can we fly away to that vision in our mind? Can we actually, as human beings, transform from what is physically in front of us, materially in front of us, from the life that we've inherited? Do we actually have the power to project a different future and then go after it. And I believe that we do. And I believe that it's so interesting to talk about abolition in 2021, because if you talk to the average white liberal person in this country, they will tell you that the abolition of something like chattel slavery was an imperative. <laughs> Obviously, black people couldn't just go on living a life where they were considered as being the legal property of white folks to be bred like cattle, to be in captivity from the moment they live to the moment they die for their children to be born into captivity. Now, I'm quick to say that we have simply replaced that form of legalized slavery with other forms of legalized slavery, including our prison system. However, how is it that we in this era can say people were right to fight for abolition back then, but that there is no abolitionist future to fight for now, that the, the need to remake, to completely reorder is done. We're so modern now that we just have to tweak this hellhole that we're living in and one day it will be better. No, we need to actually be able to wake up in the morning and to say there is a future so far beyond what we're living. And this is where I think the teachings of indigenous people who talk about seven generations, who talk about looking into a future that we're never going to actually live in, that is anathema to capitalism, right? 
capitalism is only interested in consuming for the here and now, even if it consumes what is under its very feet, destroys the soil under its very feet. That doesn't matter because under capitalism, there is no tomorrow. And so as daunting as it may seem for people, we do have to be able to project many generations into the future and try to consider what clean land, clean air, what clean water means, what different relations between human beings means. Because that is our responsibility for those who are going to come after us. Life doesn't begin and end with our consumption today and tomorrow in this world. I think jumping forward to that vision and holding on to it is probably the only way history ever moves. You know, I mm -hmm. thank you so much for uh, spending the time today, Desmond. Um, no problem. Yeah. It's a pleasure speaking with you, Garth. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. Yeah, you too. Thanks for taking the time uh, for us today and uh, coming outside. Well, I guess it's nice there. So thanks. It's beautiful. It's a pleasure being out here. Okay. Well, thank you so much, man. You take care. Yeah, you too. Talk soon. See it. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I want to say goodbye to Kelly Jack. Kelly was an OG Jack skate team punk. He had a leg infection and died in his sleep a few weeks ago. Absolute music, Kelly. Also, R.I.P. Frank. Frank was a fixture in East Vancouver for many years. My memories of overdosing are fuzzy, but I'm pretty sure it was Frank who was there, a calming presence, telling me what was going on and that everything was going to be okay. Thanks this month to Ali Graham for recording Desmond Cole in Toronto. Ali works on the podcast, We Are Not the Virus. Give it a listen. Also, check out Desmond Cole's book, The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power. I really like the audiobook. You can find links and further readings at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. While there, consider giving us a few bucks. It helps a lot. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and, rest in peace, Dave Murray and Cherise Kiwatton. Today's episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Lisa Hale, Alex Kim, Ryan McNeil, and me, Garth Mons. Our original score for today's episode was written and performed by James Ash, Sam Fenn, Kai Paulson, and I. Thanks for listening. Be safe and keep six.